in a land where no one had walked around New Zealand was a time before Brando began his adventure. This week on Occasionally Interesting, Jen and I will speak with Brando, the first man to walk around the perimeter of New Zealand. We speak with Brando about this and a wide range of topics. We really get into it with Brando. Quite prolific. Um, Brando a.k.a. Wild Boy Adventures, um, is now a professional adventurer. If that term sounds awesome, definitely listen to this podcast to learn more about what that actually entails. Um, But beyond any adventures that Brando does, he, he believes that his purpose in life is to inspire others to live their dream. And I think he does this in a very powerful way. He... He has a public speaking background, and he has written books, and just in general has some really incredible ideas to share. And TED Talk as well, if I'm not mistaken. A very interesting fella. You will hear my orca whale impression, which I'm excited. <laughs> Jen's favorite thing, I think, from my, all of our my podcasts. favorite thing in all of this podcast. If you check out our Instagram channel at occasionally interesting on Instagram, and maybe have to scroll back a little bit, but there's a picture of a whale, and you can just hear that audio clip as a as a teaser <laughs> for what you're about to get in this podcast. It's literally one second of this podcast, but when I was editing this episode and listened to and came across that moment i laughed so hard i played it over and over again for i don't know like 15 minutes this one second thing of trevor making a noise and then i made a, a promotional clip to entice you all to listen to this podcast because trevor makes a noise so that's really exciting and definitely worth listening to all however many hours of podcast this is just for that two seconds yes so if for nothing else listen for the ochre whale impression i'm particularly uh Interested to see if any of our listeners or, in particular, if my mother ever listens to it, what her thoughts are on his take on Ritalin. Um, I thought you're... I thought we spend the whole first episode of this podcast talking about how your mother can never listen to this podcast. And now in the last couple of days, he keeps telling his mom about this podcast. She's going to listen to it and be like, what the fuck? She won't listen to it. No. I doubt she will. Yeah, you're right. We've been trying to convince her to get on Instagram for a year yeah. now, and we can't get her to I do that. I doubt she's so. going to go yeah, yeah. figure out podcasts and how to actually listen. <laughs> but, uh, Fair play. Ritalin and amphetamines have been such a point of contention in my family for for legitimate treatment of ADD and their efficacy has been a series of debates and I thought it was very interesting and enlightening to hear Brando's approach to tackling those same questions in his mind and yeah he's gone on quite the adventure and has had many different perspectives and relationships with Ritalin throughout his life and well, he is an adventurer professional <laughs> adventurer professional adventurer with Ritalin how baller of an occupation is that like who wouldn't want that occupation who even knew that that was a possibility of an occupation i mean i feel like brando basically created that possibility he, maybe it was something just like walking around all of new zealand that had never been done before and he's like you know what i want to do i'm i'm gonna find a way to make this what i do yes, i think that just backs up the point that when you do what you want to do, that your that your heart truly, when you play the song that your heart most truly wants to sing, mm-hmm. it cannot help but benefit the world. 
and think also be able to be a, monetized. A rough uh, paraphrasing of I I was telling Trevor the other day I'm hoping to get my pal and mentor former mentor Colin Deven on the podcast. He recently or a couple years ago now wrote a book called How to change your life i forget shit yeah that <laughs> did sound like a very familiar quote what was it um all right i can't remember the name of the book title this is bad form um but his quote that i really love from that book is when you become what you are truly meant to be you cannot help but benefit the world and i think those words have seldom rung truer than in brando's case um so we met brando when we were in New Zealand, uh, this episode was actually recorded on New Year's Eve going into 2019. So At a sweet festival on a peacock and deer farm in the beautiful landscape of New Zealand, overlooking the ocean, sort of. If you climbed high enough on the mountain, you could see the ocean. Yeah, so on a mountain, there was a lot of beautiful trees blocking you from the beautiful ocean, but the trees were so wonderful. Uh, and apparently everything in New Zealand is friendly, which is really funny because it's right next to Australia where everything wants to kill you. <laughs> like even the ground is made softer in New Zealand. You did not have to wear any shoes in the middle of this gigantic farm. There's not even a twig that you could step on that would be harm. I mean, it was just it was miraculous how everything was just kind of like, yeah, hang out. Enjoy your life. It's cool. We got you. New Zealand's great. New Zealand is great, and this festival was particularly great. It was an amazing way to ring in the new year, and we met Brando. Uh, he might have been the first or second person we met. We saw him driving his big vehicle, which is uh, where he lives out of full-time now. You'll see, if you if you go to our website, occasionallyinteresting.com, and look at this episode, you can see pictures of us all posing with his big vehicle oh, it's um, an amazing vehicle yeah and he was uh, painting a mandala on it um when we met him and i do want to say if toy toy man is out there shout us drop us drop us a line <laughs> you know who you are toy you toy know man. who you are <laughs> you know what you did toy toy <laughs> no we would love to hear from you we think of you fondly every time we see a a toy toy a, toy a toy thailand toy. toy toy a thailand toy toy this has nothing to do with brando this is just another fellow we met at the festival who has and, a special and place the rest in of the hearts. fellow crew the, yeah. we, we had so many fake names for people and the, the, if any of you you know who you are drop us a line yeah definitely reach out um Anyway, uh, yeah, we, 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 we met Brando. We just saw, he, we drove in behind him into this festival and we were like, whoa, what is this car? We wanted to talk to the person about it. And then we saw him park and, uh, he was so friendly, welcomed us in, gave us a tour, answered all of our questions. And then he very sweetly gave me a bundle of lavender that he had just picked from his sister's garden the day before. And that bundle of lavender hangs next to my bedside pillow here in Thailand now. Thanks, Brando. You're the best. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, this is an awesome episode. We go into some crazy stuff. It's not just about Brando being an adventurer. We talk about the origins of racism. Uh, generation Z needs some work. You <laughs> sound so old. That generation behind us is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Indeed. Um, no, Brand- don't, don't take it personally. Just shape up. Shape up. Generation Z. <laughs> Get your shit together. Um. 
We also talk about a potentially very uh, divisive topic of we all discuss can we can we work towards having empathy for people who are often cast aside in society such as pedophiles and rapists and you know that's a very sensitive topic um but i really hope you guys stay tuned and listen to us discuss that because i think everybody makes some good points agreed my bread is about to go in the oven so so stay tuned and listen to this episode while trevor puts his bread in the oven (laughs) (laughs) bye guys Occasionally interesting, occasionally interesting, they are occasionally interesting. Today on the podcast, we have Brando Yelovich, aka Wild Boy Adventures, the first person to ever walk around the entirety of New Zealand, uh, and he has dedicated his, his life journey to adventures and sustainability and uh living a life that he believes in and we're so excited to have him on here today welcome brando kia ora <laughs> uh is it, how would how would you how do you typically give your elevator pitch of summarizing yourself well i'm an explorer in every sense of the word i uh explore things that i find curious and adventure is that thing for me at this point in my life uh Big expeditions are something that I am really drawn to because of the intense connection that I can gain with nature. So, I, I mean, like, really out there in it, if, if something happened to me, I would just be a part of it, you know? It would just be me and the world. So, yeah, I explore cool places and love every moment of it. How did this adventuring start? Well, when I was uh, 19 years old, I was in a pretty rough place in my life I um, was down the gang road and doing lots of drugs and realized that well I wasn't ever raised to be like that my parents were great and my parents uh, raised me to be um, smart and, and driven and always I always strive to succeed the best to my ability uh, so one day I woke up and I realized this isn't my life I need to change and went on a big walk. <laughs> I, I literally just had this crazy idea to walk around New Zealand to, I guess, escape and discover a new side of myself that I didn't even know existed. It's everyone's inner self is out there, but uh, so many people don't discover it. And I, I decided I wanted to. There I was, disappearing off into uh, nature to discover me. And the... Yeah, the journey of the walk around New Zealand really pushed me out into, I guess, the, the light of the adventure world and created created the life that I live today. That's beautiful. Uh, it's interesting that you say that your parents didn't raise you to be the way that you were at 19. It's not, I know it's it's very different from the life path you've chosen now, but do you have any insight into what brought you down that path originally the darker path um i have adhd so it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder it's like a chemical imbalance thing in my brain so many people have it and i'd been on ritalin my whole life 
I guess at about the age of 17, I was now managing it on my own and I wasn't doing a very good job of it. So I was taking it when I felt like I needed it and it's not really how the drug works. So I was always in this weird headspace of not being happy and not being uh, able to to f- feel like my happiness. Uh, the best way to describe me is I'm a heat-seeking dopamine rocket ship that's totally out of control <laughs> and all I want is dopamine. And when I'm not on Ritalin, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter how stupid, bad my brain is craving that, that chemical because makes me feel good but when I am on the Ritalin it uh it means that instead of using my emotion to make decisions I use reason and that's smart (laughs) so that was always a challenge for me I mean being that uncontrollable rocket ship uh, always took me off in random directions doing different things and suddenly I discovered drugs uh, outside of this pill that I'd been taking to help me manage um, my levels, uh, they provided me a natural, well not natural, but an <laughs> unnatural high, you know, something that was a synthetic feeling that made me feel good, and all I needed to do to get my hit of dopamine was smoke smoke the joint or sniff the pill, you know, and that for me was like so easily to so easy so it was just something I kind of got drawn into and and I would say addicted to because like why wouldn't I it was everything my body wanted but then I started to to kind of realize I've always been connected with myself um, on a deeper level Uh, sometimes I completely lose track of that side of myself and it, it disappears but I always am grounded at some point and realize uh, maybe I look up at the stars and realize I'm just this little being on earth with feelings and emotions like everyone else. Uh, and it brings me back to, I guess, my, my soul and my my humanity. And humanity isn't taking drugs to make you feel good. Humanity is like, well, my, my perception of um, life is to to do what you love and make sure whatever you're doing is something that makes you feel good. Uh, something that I like to tell people is if you find yourself at any point in your life and you're sad, you're unhappy, it's so simple to fix. You just need to change what you're doing. And uh, you don't like your life? Do something different with it. And there's so many people that get stuck in what they think is the only thing they can do with their life. But the truth is, they can do anything. And us as humans is our ability to be able to accomplish anything uh, is within all of us. So that pathway down to the drugs was my curiosity once again coming in. I was being an explorer of a different kind. Mm-hmm. That stage of my life, I was exploring the the unnatural I guess high of of drugs, but the moment I discovered the the natural high that nature gave gave me and the the natural high that experiencing things with other people, uh, skinny dipping in in lakes, just looking at the stars, lying under the trees, uh, hunting for my own food, fishing for for fish, 
all of those things are so primal. They're so natural, and they're things that we've lost. We've completely lost touch with. Um, yeah, so my curiosity is that drawing factor of, uh, I guess, what takes me to, or drives me to do all the things that I do. What made you know that taking a very long walk would be the solution? Well, I guess the the whole walk, it uh, it started as something, as I said, to escape, to kind of change my life, to give myself a new perspective. The initial feelings that I had in my head was, one day I'm going to have children. I want to have children. That's a pathway that I do want to go down one day. And I want to have powerful, meaningful stories and life experiences to share with them. The kind of life experiences that like, people had in the 60s and the 40s and stuff. You know, real crazy stories of uh, whether it be hardship or adventure. And for me, my parents, they didn't have any of those stories. They had me quite young and they, they sure, they, they knew a little bit about life but they were still learning all of the things that I'd already learned by the time I was 20. And I want to be able to share that knowledge with with my kids one day and at least have the experience to be able to help them understand as they're growing up different aspects of life. Um, So that was a big part of the drive to, to go and do this thing other than changing my life was create meaningful stories but then also, I'd been on this Ritalin drug for my whole life and decided on this journey to not take it. Uh, so when I ran out of my prescription, I stopped taking it. And for the first time in my life, I met a new human that I'd never met before. And it was myself. Um, it was very, very interesting to to discover this, this new person inside me. But um, I'll just pause because you can probably hear that, right? No, it's... Sweet. These, are, these are very good microphones. <laughs> so I, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> you met this cool. new person for the oh, first time. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I'd met this person for the the first time and it really, it was inspiring for myself because you, people say they don't like themselves sometimes, but when you spend 600 days with yourself, either you learn to love yourself or you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the The solitude taught me some really powerful things but this new new person that that I discovered uh, it was like the real me and by being away from society being away from the electronic world the materialistic world literally to put it into perspective for the way I was feeling and the position I was in I had no money I had a sleeping bag a tent a bow a knife a fishing rod and I used all of those things to survive. If I didn't eat, I was going to die. If I didn't find water, I was going to die. And that was the that was the position I'd put myself in. And I put myself in that position on purpose because I wanted to feel like I was a part of the earth, not just walking amongst it, you know? I wanted to be one with the trees, one with the grass, one with the animals. I wanted to kill, to eat, rather than buy some wrapped up meat in a supermarket that's been bred for money and nothing else 
uh, hasn't been bred to feed people. The people that are growing the cows aren't growing the cows to feed people. They're growing the cows for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided that I just I needed to gain a better understanding and a better connection with, for one, where my food came from, but what I am. Like, that's the big question. Like, what what are we? Like, sure, we're flesh and bone and we're like humans but what does that mean so to to be out there with all the other living things was so inspiring it just made me realize that i am no different than an ant or a rabbit or a tree or a blade of grass you know they're all living things and they all have energy and they're all these powerful forces that when we put ourselves in a house or in a building or remove ourselves from dirt and, and keep ourselves so incredibly sterile and clean, we lose touch with what truly makes us human, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Mm. Um, do you, you mentioned that going off Ritalin is like a vital part of this experience. Do you think you wouldn't have met yourself in the same way if, if you had stayed on it the, throughout your journey? It's an interesting thought. I had Ritalin for the first four months of my um, almost two-year-long adventure, and I had met sides of myself while I was on the Ritalin. Um, But I guess the side that I met when I wasn't on it was uncontrollable. It was that uncontrollable dopamine heat-seeking rocket ship. Mm -hmm. And out there on my own, that was exceptionally great. My intuition... I would do what I knew was going to make me feel good. And by doing what made me feel good meant I stayed alive. alive. Whereas, uh, sure, the Ritalin, it it doesn't change me as a person. It doesn't change anything about me other than the fact that the choices choices I make have a little bit of reason behind them rather than just emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think with the Ritalin, I still would have discovered sides of myself because I was in the position to discover those things. I went out there to find myself and uh, whether I was taking a drug that I've taken for my whole life or not, um, I was still me um, in my body. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, I'd imagine that'd be a very isolating experience. 600 plus days, you said? Yeah, 600 on the dot. (laughs) <laughs> and vast majority of the time completely alone yes how was it coming back because i'd imagine that you also gained this unique perspective that not many people alive on this world really know especially in like you know western um and we've heard other people other travelers talk about it being isolating even just getting a sort of more worldly perspective as they travel more and then come back home to people that haven't done that it being that they don't fit in anymore yeah. they're no longer part of any group in the same way or society because they have a completely different set of experiences so yeah was that really intensified for you yeah what was it like transitioning back to real life (laughs) i i never went back to real life oh good Um, (laughs) i i I totally understand what you mean with with what other travelers have told you when i came back from what was seemingly an isolating experience which my perception of my experience was an intensely connected experience with 
all the living things, not just the the realm of humans, but the the bugs and the birds and the bees, all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, so although it was isolating, it gave me a perspective that when I did come back to reality, I like to call it came back to the box, mm-hmm. which ninety percent of humanity lives in. Um, At least, yeah, yeah. The the working world, you know, everyone that's just conforming to what the what society has created, you know, buying a house, starting a family, working a job, retiring, getting a pension, then going and living. It seems like you're living at the wrong end of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that end of your life should be about. I don't know. It's more living, (laughs) but you should be living all the way through it rather than just saving up to live at the end. and our perception of living is money because without money we can't live but it's not true you know uh when i came back i remember the very last day of my journey i had just seen every single little bit of beach that was physically possible to walk to and i came around the last corner and saw a site that i hadn't seen for 600 days it was the same point that i took my first step my first physical step on this big journey and there was about 60 people up uh, at the Cape Deanga lighthouse which is where I began my journey and they had signs and horns and there was a tv crew well, was, how did everyone know that you were coming that day I had a tracker that tracked uh-huh. me every single day um so that uh, mum and dad knew I was still alive and moving <laughs> that's nice so there was this big uh, group of people there the the news was covering the story because I was just about to become the first person in history to walk around the coastline of New Zealand and I thought that that last day was going to be the most powerful and the biggest lesson that I learned from this whole massive journey was the end is the worst part <sighs> because the end is where it ends it's like uh, life, life's journey, the end is death. This was the death of my 600-day adventure. Sure, it lives on in me, but I'm not walking the coastline every day anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not shooting deer and pigs and goats and rabbits and eating bugs because I was so, so hungry. <laughs> I I am now having to work so I can get money to, to buy uh, the things that I need to survive because I can't live like I did within the box. Mm-hmm. Had you given thought to what your next step would be when, upon returning home? Not at all. No, I, in fact, there was moments where I was incredibly stressed and got really emotional about not knowing uh, what I was coming back to. Because when I left, my friends, they, they were good people, don't get me wrong, but they were all druggies. Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, they did drugs. They were in that same way of life. And I hadn't seen them for 600 days. People change. People move on. I sure had changed. And I had a new perspective of everything. But I remember getting back and going to Auckland City, because I lived in Auckland at the time, and sitting at a cafe on the side of the road and just watching people. And they were like little drones or droids, just all walking like fast, just not looking at anyone just they had somewhere to be and that was where they were going they didn't even look at you they didn't wave they didn't smile they just they were doing their thing and that's totally okay that's their their life but it felt so wrong and so disconnected that we're all these people these beings all together and we're so separated it's the classic example is sitting on a plane 
99% of the time, the person next to you doesn't even say hello. They they just they don't even acknowledge that there's someone else sitting next to them. And that's just blows my mind. You know, we we're social creatures, yet the way that we've been raised means that talking to someone next to you on an aeroplane or a bus or in any situation is awkward or strange. Or rude. Exactly, or rude, which is the worst of them all. But once you gain that perspective of traveling, we are used to going up to complete strangers and telling them your story or asking them for advice. Or or a big one is when you're out there on your own, you obviously have all these emotions building up. And when you meet people, because you only meet them for short periods of time, your body's really craving this deeper connection, like uh, physical touch and just this really intense, I guess, love from everyone that you meet. And the only way to achieve a small part of that is to tell them your life story. Tell them everything about you. Be open, emotional, honest, and, and really just expose yourself. That way they feel comfortable to do the same. Uh, but people don't do that, you know. Sharing emotions, is, especially men, <laughs> is something that uh, is wrong. And crying's wrong and all these things. So I, I, would, uh, I would always go out there to openly share myself with people that I met so that every time I had this new connection with someone, I learned something, whether it be about myself or whether it be something that they shared with me. And that was a big factor of what kept the journey going and what kept me uh, true to myself was the idea that I can learn from others. And, yeah. Totally forgot where I was going with that, but that's okay. I do that sometimes. I think it's really interesting. So, like, uh, when you're traveling, you, you sort of are in need of deeper connection because you generally have sort of more instantaneous, short-lived introductions to people, and that sort of causes you to go out of your way to make deeper, put an effort into making deeper connections because otherwise, you don't. Totally. It's like a general statement. I think that's fair of anybody. Yeah, yeah. That very, very true. And that that was where I was going was uh connecting with people is very simple when you're on your own. When you're out there and you haven't had anyone to talk to for three weeks straight except for yourself and you come across a man sitting on the beach fishing <laughs> and you know, it's just so so easy. It seems it would seem foreign to not approach that person and say something. Yeah. Um but when there's so many people together, that disappears. That that it suddenly isn't foreign to talk to strangers because I don't know. Well, so how has that carried with you back to the box? Well, I I talk to strangers. <laughs> I will openly have conversations with people on buses and talk people's ears off on planes. I mean, they only have to put up with me for an hour or something, <laughs> you know. And ninety nine percent of the time when I start speaking and I, I share my story and I share my my insights to what I've discovered from my experience, they're inspired you know and they they vibe with what I'm saying, so I feel for me to be able to share my life and share my experiences is beneficial for other people, but everyone's got a story to tell, whether it be exploring 
the coastline of New Zealand or exploring the realm of science or something. Everyone's got their own pathway that they're on. Everyone's explorers in their own right. Um, I mean, you don't have to walk around a country to be an explorer. Uh, everyone's curious. It's what makes us probably the most human is the curiosity of the unknown. Um, but the unknown's terrifying. It's frightening. It's full of fear. Uh, the The journey has opened my eyes to trying new things and bringing it back to understanding the that possible that anything is possible and impossible is nothing you know it's it's just this a strange concept that we're brought up with to i guess keep us in line the the factory uh, makeup factory workers unless you're the boss you're not allowed to dream you're not allowed to succeed and and do these things you just work hard and then you go and have fun but it's it's not true and if everyone thought this way if everyone realized that you can do anything and money is just this weird fake thing that someone created one day to make money to make some currency so that they are now rich and their families are rich but go to a third world country where they have no money but their quality of life is richer than anywhere else in the world you know the western way of life is wrong it's it works and it's easy and it's simple and it's comfortable but it's not for your body it's not for your soul it's for your pocket it's for materialistic goods it's it's so you can save up to go and and i guess experience these soul finding things but i mean 5 minutes in the grass every day or 5 minutes in the forest that'll that'll give you a connection with the outside world i like to think outside no box required and for me I don't fit in anymore. I don't fit in in, in the realm of the box. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those places that I I almost feel invisible. I feel like I'm connected with everything around me, except for the people, um, because as cheesy as it might sound, they haven't seen the light, and the light's whatever it may be. You know, for me, it's. It's connection with myself and a deeper understanding of of where I can take my life if I put my mind to it. Uh, so, do you feel like when you come across the rare person who has had who has seen the light that you are able to spot that more easily? Totally. And places like this festival are full of people like that. Sure, they might not have discovered uh, their journey through the same uh, pathway that I have, but. Everyone that comes to these kind of festivals is seeking that inner self, you know. They, they're they seeking the, the inner them. And yoga, meditation, all of those things have a huge role to play in, I guess, connecting. So when you do discover or meet someone that is like-minded or like uh, think thinks the same and understands what you're talking about when when you say you know i just feel really like blissful right now or really connected right now i feel delightful you know they understand that 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 isn't just me saying yeah i'm good it's <laughs> i'm i'm fucking delightful <laughs> you know i feel really good about myself and 
yeah, it's it's really cool in one aspect because there are a lot of people out there that that are connected with themselves and understand themselves, but they're all in the same sort of headspace of I don't fit in. Anymore. Yeah, and that's why they keep traveling. That's why they keep going to festivals. That's why they keep disappearing off into the bush. You know, absolutely. Like if I didn't have uh, a large online following and if I wasn't uh if i didn't get a lot of my happiness from inspiring others i would be a hermit living on the beach somewhere just fishing and hunting but i realized i have a a higher purpose and my purpose is to inspire others to discover themselves and the way i inspire people to do that is by sharing my experiences but not only that explaining that all you need to do to find yourself is do what makes you happy I mean, that is the goal of life is happiness, right? That's what we're all seeking. It's what we make money for so we can buy happiness mm-hmm. or our perception of it. Happiness is the secret to life. And it's so easy to come by if you go out of your way to get it. And like I said before, five minutes in the grass, under the trees, just these small little tiny changes to a daily life have a dramatic effect on the person that you are. And I think the most important part is that you're doing these things on purpose. Like you're going out there consciously and saying, I'm going to sit under this tree right now. I'm going to hug this tree. I'm going to sit in the grass. And sure, there's there's probably people listening who think, bloody hippie, you know? Absolutely. But but it's the truth. When When you have the connection with the living things that are everywhere, like trees are alive, you know, they're like actual they're things that are living. They've got energy in them. Um, once you understand that, you can draw that energy. And, I mean, I, five years ago, would have been like, whatever. That's whatever. Not <laughs> not a chance. But, you know, when you hug a tree, you don't feel like the energy going through your body. But you know it's there. Once you understand that that it is there you you realize that you are connected with it. I mean, some people, they say they can feel it pulsing through their body. And yes, maybe they can, but just it's just energy, you know, it's everywhere. And it's one of the ways of finding happiness is being in nature, the most natural place that we were actually designed, designed to, live to live in, you know, <laughs> not driving in cars, not riding on bicycles which although it makes you be in nature i mean i mean bare feet with no clothes on just out there in it just being a a human you know like an animal I, i guess the best way to describe it is connecting with your inner animal you know because we're animals that's all we are we're just no different than a pig, really, or a dolphin, or a whale. I mean, they can breathe underwater, but... Uh, <laughs> well, actually, both of them need to hold their breath, just like us. They just are way better at it. Yeah, you know? So, I guess because of the way our brains work and the way that society has put us at the very, very tippity-top of everything, humanity realizes it. Well, they think that everything's underneath humans, but really we're on the same level as everything. We've just discovered ways of making life easier building buildings to and isolating stop ourselves the rain. from everything yes, else exactly and it's so easy to listen to someone like me and be like nah whatever just pass it off but if you really think about it 
what more natural place is there to be than in the natural world? There's like, it's so foreign to be in a building. It's so foreign to, to be walking on a bloody bit of pavement. <laughs> it's like hand sanitizer, all of these, these things that we've created to get natural stuff off us. I didn't get sick once in 600 days. Wow. And I, I never washed my hands. I was just, <laughs> I had filthy hands, filthy everything. You know, I was eating meat that was four days old. And uh, bugs. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I didn't get sick. The only time I, I got sick was when I came back and suddenly I'm around people. You know, you put you put a whole lot of pigs in a pen, they're going to get diseases. Yeah. And they're going to they're going to get sick and they're going to die. But you put them out there in the bush, sure, sometimes they might get diseases, they might die, but it's not very likely. They'll they'll get on a lot better in the wild, in nature, than in a little pen. Um, yeah, so. Um, I want to I ask about your books. So you've said... It's vitally important to you to share your stories and inspire. And uh, you mentioned that a big part of this inspiration was to share it with your own kids, but you've taken it further to share it with kids and adults and just anyone who can read these stories. And uh, how did that? How did that come to be? Yeah. Well, when I finished the journey, I got approached by Penguin, and they uh, they wanted to turn my journey into a book, uh, so that I could share it with others and I thought it was a great idea I've got dyslexia though so writing is like the very bottom of my list of things to do that make me feel good (laughs) Um, but I partnered up with a ghostwriter who did all my writing for me I just had to talk which made everything really really simple Uh, the books the books were written when I was much younger so four years ago I I didn't have the insightful I guess, connection that I have now that has developed over time the more I've kind of let the 600 days sink in. And I'm still learning things about that journey that I took. Um, so that book is really just a story of adventure. Like my, my first book, Wild Boy, that is just a story of adventure. It is nothing but adventure stories. Me walking down the beach, uh, discovering new things it's it's honestly like being a part of the journey rather than reading someone's diary of of the events as they unfolded Mm. Uh, and then i did this and then i did that it's it's like you read it and you feel like you're me walking through this journey you feel like you're looking at everything through my eyes uh so the reason i did it like that is i wouldn't read someone's biography you know i i wouldn't read a diary of of something that uh yeah, I wouldn't read a diary because it just doesn't interest me. And why would I write something that doesn't interest me? And by doing that, I could really pour my heart and soul into it because I knew that people would get it and they would just vibe with the story. Uh, after I wrote the first book, it, it became a bestseller in New Zealand, not only um, because it's written well, but because the story and the following that I created and the I guess the horde of people that I had inspired, they they wanted to know more. They wanted to understand why, why I did it. And I guess what I took from the journey was why not? 
Right? This is life, and I'm doing nothing but what makes me happy. And for me, making others happy, that makes me happy. Not everyone's like that, but that's something that makes me happy. I decided that uh, I would write another book a bit later, but that, that came much much later in the piece. I kind of got addicted to another kind of drug when I finished the, the journey and struggled to fit back in with society. In order to to get back on the, I guess, the pathway, I learned how to drive trucks and I started being a truck driver, which was strangely similar to walking around New Zealand. Like the dream time, the time I had in my head driving for four hours was identical to the time I had walking down the beach. You know, I, I would call it my walking meditation because... <laughs> I was completely conscious was with what was going on, but time would just disappear. I'd be walking for like nine hours and it would feel like 40 minutes. Um, but I was completely conscious. So the same, same sort of thing happened with the truck driving. Um, but going from walking every day to sitting every day really screwed with my body and ended up hurting my back quite bad. Um, I, I'd kind of been on this pathway of, of no no chemicals, no drugs, nothing like that. So I went to all the options like chiropractors, acupuncture, witch doctors, Chinese medicine, everything to try and fix my back. And eventually I realized maybe I should go and get uh, an MRI, like a CT scan. Uh, And I got the CT scan. They sent me to get MRI and realized that I'd actually perforated one of my discs. So I'd done something physically damaging to my body that i couldn't fix by myself how long were you truck driving to have this not long this was so like pretty much about a year sitting is evil folks yeah that's wow and um so yeah i perforated one of my discs in my back and had to have surgery um and that was the first time i guess i i ever realized that the the other side of medicine the scientific side is really smart you know it's it's really powerful and it's it's really well thought out it's it's nothing wrong with it it's nothing wrong with taking drugs i mean i took ritalin my whole life and for so long i thought that was wrong you know i i felt like there was this like i'm different and i need to take this drug to to help me function and having that back surgery and having someone cut me open and fix something that was actually wrong with my back made me really open my eyes to another whole world um and yeah i guess it gave me an appreciation for pharmaceutical drugs which have obviously been designed to prolong life and make uh make life easier um because you you can't get everything from being out in nature like if a pig slipped down a cliff and rolled down and broke its leg. Its leg's still going to be broken unless someone fixes it. So uh, that made life really difficult for me when I uh, suddenly went from now sitting in a truck to lying in a bed for six weeks. Wow! I couldn't. I wasn't allowed to get out. Like oh, I had to lie wow. on my back for the first three weeks, and then I was allowed to to stand up and walk a little bit. Um, so there, that was. That was some serious, serious bad time for me. And it kind of pushed me into this, uh, I guess, depression um, state. I still hadn't started taking Ritalin 
at this point. I was still off it, and um, those those waves of dopamine seeking rocket ships just kept coming, but there was no dopamine to grab. So my my body would be craving it, but there was nothing. Mm. So uh, I guess I started getting that dopamine from Instagram. I started really pushing all my images, my photos, my, my everything. And Instagram became my new drug. My likes in the morning, they, they gave me the happiness that I needed to get through my day. And if I woke up one day and didn't get as many likes as I thought I would, I was, I was sad. You know, I, I was not a happy person. And it took me so long to realize that I'm now addicted to something else. You know, I was addicted to this fake social media world. On one hand, a big part of what I was doing was to inspire people. And it made me feel good, not only getting the likes, but knowing that the messages that I was putting out there were honest and they were powerful and they they were the truth. But the way it's designed, like a game, like a video games, they're designed to make you feel good for doing what you're doing. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep playing it. You wouldn't keep putting new photos on. If no one liked any of my photos... No one saw what I was putting out there. Why would I put it out there? I would find other mediums to do it mm-hmm. so that I knew people were were kind of vibing with, with what I was putting out there. And I went down to adventure tourism course after my back healed so that I could, uh, I guess the, the first initial reason I did that was I wanted to make all the, well, not make, but I wanted to help all the people who were following what I was doing uh, Realize that you don't need to walk around New Zealand to find success. So I went back to school. I hated school, but I went back to school and learned uh, to be a guide. So raft guide, rock climbing instructor, all of these uh, different mediums in the adventure world that I already knew how to do, but now I knew how to do them safely. Mm. So I was sharing this whole journey of, of learning and progress, uh, not only for myself because it was it was awesome <laughs> learning all these new things and rafting every second day and rock climbing in between. But, you know, sharing, sharing my journey with other people, that's one of those things bringing back to, that makes me feel happy. I met a guy called Greg. Uh, he had been in the SAS, the special service. And, um, he, he taught me some, some really powerful things and I didn't really realize it until, uh, uh, I guess not actually that long ago, he he was always really annoyed with me, and I didn't know why. And he uh, he didn't get the Instagram thing. He was he was a lot older, and he didn't understand. He didn't understand why I did it. He didn't have an addiction to it, um, so of course he's not going to get it. And he he said some some hard words to me at some points that I need to find myself and everyone around us. They were all. They were giving him shit because they thought, "What do you mean? He he knows himself better than anyone." But the truth was, I didn't know myself anymore because I had fallen down the rabbit hole of the social media world. I went down to Stewart Island uh, with the idea of creating content, getting likes, you know, building my social presence. And when I got there, I. Uh, I guess that's when I really realized what was happening because there was no access to social media for 30 days. There was just me out there on my own doing what I did when I walked around New Zealand and instantly 
I gained that connection with what I was doing again. And that was eye-opening enough to realize that it doesn't just have to be a little pill to make you addicted, you know? And addiction is is with anything that makes you feel good. It's about your feelings. Uh, I went down there to Stewart Island to walk around the coastline. That's what I told everyone I was doing. I took uh, 30 days worth of food, one meal a day, 100 grams of food a day, which is not a lot, but I was used to surviving off nothing uh, with my first journey. So I knew the first kind of week would be really tough. My body re kind of learning that it's not getting food every single day. It's getting a tiny bit. Um, I was substituting that with rats and uh, possums and um, power and fish, pretty much anything I could find. Uh, I got to about day 17 on this journey and I hadn't been having fun. You know, I was I was disappointed. I was nervous. I was scared. I I just you know, I didn't feel like what I was doing was right, and it hit me at one point. It had been raining for the past ten days. Everything was wet. I was so miserable. I was walking through the thickest like scrub that I'd ever ever seen in my life. Moving one hundred meters a day, it was ridiculous. Jeez. I uh, broke down in tears and just started screaming and shouting. There was no one anywhere. I was screaming and shouting at the top of my voice. And then I suddenly realized, well, no one's going to hear me. No one's going to help me. I just have to pull myself together and keep going. Took about 10 steps, broke down again. I'd reached my mental capacity of of what I was doing. And I decided to change change the whole adventure. I didn't change what I was doing. I was still going on a big walk, but I changed my perception of why I was doing it. So I wasn't walking around the coast to walk around the coast anymore to make the people happy who were following me. Now I was walking uh, where I wanted to walk. So I picked 10 locations around the island that I was going to to go to. So the the Western concept of goal setting, well, it's in, it's in every culture, but like we call it goal setting. Um, I set like 10 little goals for me to achieve which now made this whole journey so much easier i now wasn't my goal wasn't 15 days away my goal was two days away and when i got there dopamine release you know it's just the primal animal instinct i'm happy and then the next one i'm happy don't get me wrong it was still just as hard as it was like two days before but now i was doing it because I wanted to do it rather than because I knew people wanted me to do it. Um, So that really made me understand that social media had been ruling my world for the past almost two years. Uh, When I came back from that journey, I, uh, I guess I had a new, a new outlook on, on the way I use social media and the way that I incorporate it into my daily life, because it's still important for what I do. It still enables me to connect with all of the people that, that love what I do and inspire them to, to do what I love and do what they love. Uh, but rather than going on missions for Instagram, I go on missions for me and capture them and share them uh, in their most raw form. So I share them the way that I perceive them rather than the way that I think people want to see them. And sure, some people don't vibe with that. Some people don't like the fact that I'm brutal and honest and naked half the time, you know. 
but it's it's me it's who i am and why shouldn't i share that with people why should i hide uh stupid things uh, like the way i treat my family uh, i i can be a dick sometimes and and i openly share that because everyone can be a dick sometimes but you jump on this realm of social media and all you see is glamour and happiness and and good stuff and i don't want to be one of those contributors to false happiness you know I i want people to understand that i have problems and everybody has problems and the the best way to overcome those problems is by sharing them with people when i share a problem people come and help you know that is the most powerful thing about humans community is helping one another and jumping back to that plane that person next to me actually the funny funny i said that just then the flight that i took uh when i came back from vancouver island i uh, flew down on my own to uh to wanaka and there was a lady who was petrified of planes once again she didn't say anything to me i was really tired because i just got off a massive 18 hour flight so i was sleeping and i woke up just as we were coming into land it was so bumpy and this total stranger was holding my hand and i didn't find it weird i mean a lot of people would but uh she was petrified she was scared for her life she thought she was going to die because she hated planes but that connection was obviously enough for her to be like community you know that i'm helping her even though i don't know her and that's what we need to do as people is connect with one another on every level possible you know is share love with someone share happiness with someone cry with someone lose someone with someone you know all of these fundamental human feelings and emotions are so important and so often we cover them up with drugs or we cover them up with pills to make you happy you know we cover them up with going to work doing all these things and we hide our feelings and once again men <laughs> they do this a lot more than women women do as well but uh i guess just the way men are raised to tough big man i can't do anything wrong raised, i can't cry society. you know society raises men like yeah. that and um yeah i guess that aspect is, is so wrong because community and people they they are happiness, you know. They are comfort. Social beings, once again, we, we're all connected um, because we share the same bodies, you know. We share human bodies. Uh, I've got a big belief that this is my human form, but this isn't me, that the person, well, the, the thing inside my head that's telling me the words to come out isn't this body. It's in me, you know. It's It's this my inner being is speaking right now uh it's using this mouth and uh, this voice box to project what i'm saying but what you're looking at right now isn't where these words are coming from absolutely and that that deeper inner connection is is something that i would love to inspire other people to discover i think a really interesting point that um you were just talking about is because I'm in the camp of social media and Facebook. While I personally don't use it all that often, uh, I think that it sort of gets a really bad name recently that I think is, you know, it's, it's valid in a lot of ways. Like it does, people are, do become addicted to it. It is potentially used in a way that is, is not great for some people, but I think that it is one of the great connecting forces of our time. And we will see that it becomes something that is marvelous. 
And I think an important distinction is one that you just touched on where, you know, you began doing stuff for other people rather than yourself. You were taking pictures on Instagrams because you thought it would be what they wanted to see rather than what you wanted to see. And I think that is, you know, especially I was going to ask you that and then you went right into it. And I think that was a beautiful way of answering my question, which was, you know, as a social media influencer, how do you how did you move past that sort of addiction addicted mindset of the way you sort of fell into it coming back um i don't know if I say that the best way i would want to but yeah. that was beautiful um i think that was a great answer you know do stuff that for yourself do the things that you want to do and then and don't hide the messy parts yeah 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 i mean i think that it does allow you to be vulnerable and then allow people to relate on a global scale to you which is, is a beautiful thing and and I think in, in media right now, it kind of gets this negative image of like desensitizing everybody to everything. And I don't think that's entirely fair. Mm. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, I guess it gets it gets a lot harder. Um, in the beginning, I just went back to my roots. Like with social media, I just went back to why I did what I did, why I started. That's that's the the key thing to to ground yourself. Some people will go and meditate. They'll go and literally sit on the ground and ground themselves. But the the easiest way to describe that is to just think in your head on your own or write it down. Write down, why did I start? Why am I doing what I do? And go right back to the beginning, to the first time you did it, your first experience with nature, your first experience with science, you know, your first experience with the medical world. Just go right back to the very beginning and then analyze why you're doing it now. And if it isn't what you believe in, then go back to your roots. Go back to why you started doing it. I started Instagram to share my journey, my personal journey with people. And people loved it, you know. People absolutely loved the fact that I was just doing me. I was just being me. And I was sharing it with people. And the moment I changed my perspective, sure, the, the people loved what I was doing. And I knew they, I was an entertainer. You know, people loved what I was doing. But it was at my expense. You know, I, I wasn't doing what made me happy. I was relying solely on doing what made other people happy. So going back to, to the roots of why you do anything is always the easiest way to to remember why you started. Okay, major top topic swing. Um, I want to know how you met your partner and how your time of isolation um, has, I assume, contributed to you being a better partner. And if I... Do you see that in yourself, that, that being isolated um, and getting to know yourself in that way has made you be a better partner? Yeah, I um, I met my partner when I was walking around New Zealand. Oh, wow. Um, so I... What yeah. day? <laughs> day 200. No, I don't, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what day, but um, I, was, I was walking around a particular bit of coast and uh, a little black dog appeared. Always a good start. Yeah, yeah. A little black dog appeared and started following me. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Uh-huh. And then half an hour later, I suddenly realized, shit, this dog's still following me. Like, <laughs> this is probably thinking, hey, let's go to the beach. <laughs> walking down this track on, on the cliffs. And uh, about about half an hour before that, I had been at someone's house having a cup of tea. A guy called Brett, just about to leave to Costa Rica. And uh, there was a dog bed, like right in the corner of the room, but there was no dog. 
So I just kind of put two and two together and realized that the dog must have followed me because he thought, hey, there's a person here to take me to the beach. <laughs> and anyway, I knew this guy Brett was gone. So I didn't want to walk back up to the house and, I don't know, what, tie the dog up? Like, it's not my dog. I can't tie it up. <laughs> and so I just continued down. I was staying in the campground that night. Uh, I'd left my number with him and he was going to give it to his daughter. Um and when she got home from work, if it wasn't too late, she was going to invite me up um, for dinner. So I I got to the campground. They wouldn't let me in with the dog oh, no. because there was, like, no dogs. So I sat down on the grass outside and I guess just kind of hoped that this girl would call so I could tell her I had her dog. And uh, she did call. It was, like, 7 o'clock at night, winter, so it got dark at, like, 5. Wow. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the cold, um, cuddling up with this this little dog <laughs> and she called and said sorry it's it's getting too late I'm not going to be home for another hour and uh, have you got somewhere to stay and I was like yeah I'm happy to stay down here at the campground but do you have a little black dog and she was like is it called Kaya and I said Kaya and sure enough the dog picks its head up and uh yeah well I stole your dog <laughs> <laughs> so uh she she was like all right I'll, I'll come home now and she it took her like uh, probably like 40 minutes to get there. She came with a whole lot of chocolates and like lollies and stuff for me and Aww. traded the lollies and chocolates for the dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know whether she felt sorry for the little homeless looking 19 year old <laughs> down at the beach um, being stuck out in the cold looking after her dog, which by the way, her dog is like her life. She loves that thing as if it were. Well, uh, do you have pets? Yes, we have a dog. So you you know what it's we like, know. you know. If someone Absolutely. took your dog, it's like taking a baby. <laughs> worse. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So much worse because they give you nothing but love 100% of the time. <laughs> they don't cry. Um, so she came and got her dog and invited me up to the house for, for a cup of tea. And um, they had a spare room that I could stay in, which made everything so much easier. I mean, I didn't have to go and pay for a campsite. and uh, So I stayed in the spare room. And um, we we stayed up real late and got talking. And she was a really cool girl. Like she just uh, a free spirit, and she rode horses. And she was, I guess, adventurous in her own sense. Sure, she didn't go on massive expeditions at that point, but uh, <laughs> she uh, fast forward. Yeah, yeah. She loved she loved just being a person. You know, she loved life, every aspect of it. She just. She just did what she did because she was passionate about it. She works in a hospital, and she works in a hospital because she loves helping people. You know, she loves helping people to to be alive. And uh, anyway, I fast forward a week. I had to come back to the small little town uh, to speak to one of the schools. The school really wanted me to come in and share my story with their students, and they came and picked me up. Uh, brought me back to the school on a Sunday. I was going to talk on a Monday morning and I thought, I'm going to ask this girl out on a date. So I bought some pizza and a bottle of wine and just decided to, I don't know, do it the old-fashioned way and called her up on the phone and asked her out on a date. And uh, apparently she was terrified. She didn't want to. But her cousins <laughs> were like, how often is is someone genuinely going to come and ask you out on a date like that? You know, no Tinder, no like, online talking it was just a real human connection and uh so yeah she agreed <laughs> and yeah it was an awesome awesome date and 
when I got to the next little town um, that she worked at, I was going right round the Coromandel Peninsula. She uh, she she liked me quite a bit, and I liked her, so we decided to to start something and. She followed me up the coast from there pretty much every weekend. She would get in her car and drive to wherever I was Aww. and stay with me. And um, That's amazing. Yeah, so she really, truly became part of my, my journey. Uh, I guess almost like my my emotional support, my emotional supporter uh, when when I uh, really longed for that, that love, that connection, which is a fundamental part of living. Uh, it was there rather than me trying to connect with total strangers in one moment, <laughs> there was actually someone there that I could, you know, just be myself to and, and express those feelings of love and happiness and um, and not just on like a superficial, physically feel-good level, like a proper full-on mental, uh, this love is making me feel good. Uh, so... She was she was a part of the journey now, and she's she was a part of my life, and I was a part of hers. I uh, I I was still young. I finished when I was just about to turn twenty one, and I had a huge insight of who I was and what my life was meant to look like, uh, what I'd created for my myself, and uh, I thought that I, I thought that I was the best version of myself at that point. But the truth was I still had problems. I still had ADHD and it still controlled my life and uh, emotions ruled my actions. Um, and that, that had been, that had been going on for the last three, four years almost. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I've been the best partner in the world. Um, I've done, I've done a lot of things that just are really stupid and dumb that were driven by, that emotional craving of dopamine and uh when when i look back on the last four years i uh i sometimes ask myself like why and the hardest thing to to explain is uh you know it's it's like a deep-seated drive for dopamine whether it be she says don't go down the cliffs because it's rough and i'm like i'm going down the cliffs because it's rough, you know, like, don't jump off that cliff because it's 20 meters high. I'm jumping off the cliff because it's freaking awesome. <laughs> and then, you know, then you, she, she bursts into tears and she explains that, like, her, her auntie's partner jumped off that cliff to kill himself. And things like that, if I'd stopped and actually listened to what she was saying, used reason, would have avoided those horrible things like, why should I bring up memories like that for someone just because I I want a dopamine release, you know? And there was a lot of things that, that did happen over the last four years that, that I'm not proud of. Um, but it's it's connected us on, on a level of, of true love, not superficial love, you know, the, the kind of love that you can use to overcome anything, uh, absolutely anything. And that, that's what my perception of love is really is is to be with someone that even if you killed someone or even if you did like the the worst thing anyone could think of you can still work through that problem together and use it to, to bond closer to, to build that connection sure at times uh, trust might be lost and uh, trust's a huge part of a relationship of course but 
it's pretty easy to lose trust, but it's a long road to get it back. So uh, I decided that I really wanted to start sharing uh, these big trips with her. I had already gone on uh, two other big ones on my own. I walked across uh, walked across Greenland. Um, it took 30 days. Um, Stewart Island was another one. I went into the Himalayas on an aid expedition carrying 400 kgs of medical supplies and, uh, and clothes to the people of Pangbushe, uh in the Upper Everest region. And that was... Uh, for me, that was just a an awesome experience to connect with a new culture and and help people. Once again, I love helping people. Um, some people love to help people by giving money to charities, which is great, and keep doing it. But for me, I know that I can do more by being somewhere. Um, I know I can buy a plane ticket and help people myself and know that I'm helping people and really feel good about helping people. Um, but these were these were all solo expeditions. I was on my own for all of them until recently, uh, just last month. Uh, we went to Vancouver Island together, and Vancouver Island is in Canada. It's the largest island uh, in the America in the Americas, uh, and decided we were going to kayak around it. Uh, I had heaps of kayaking experience from my adventure tourism course, but uh, Naya had been in a kayak like once <laughs> twice on a lake <laughs> wow. and um, we're about to take on the the pacific ocean like the west coast of vancouver island and when you mention the west coast of vancouver island people people go there to watch storms you know yeah. it's like it's the only place to surf on in canada <laughs> so um it, it was it was rough and it was gnarly but it was a true challenge and it was i guess for me the the biggest test of our relationship. If we can get through something that is potentially life and death every single day, <laughs> then we can get through anything at all. And the coolest thing I learned about that journey wasn't the success of, of actually completing it. It was watching my partner learn and and knowing that I was helping her through at times and, and she was helping me through at times. But actually watching her succeed was so cool and uh that journey that really opened my eyes to the person that i am <clears throat> and uh the the fact that i need to really work on myself um and understand me a lot better than i do because although i've been out there there's always something to learn and the brain's always changing and there's always new uh, negative and positive things that are coming in and out uh, so when I came back, I I kind of started to reconnect with my spiritual side and I started doing a lot of yoga and meditation, uh, still going on my big expeditions, of course. But now, yeah, now I guess I'm on a journey to, to better understanding. And for me, this year coming, um, New, New Year's Eve right now, so this, this year coming is about connecting to my spiritual self and and by doing that, I'm hoping to be able to gain, I guess, enlightenment uh, on a deeper scale so that I can take a step back from my material body and analyze situations and be, be the best version of myself. You know, like, if you look at, if you look at people on a chemical level, I guess, 
you do something and it makes you feel good. Um, you you do you do anything and it makes you feel good. And a lot of people have different things they like. You know, if we're talking on on a sexual scale, and I bring up sexual scale because it is the is the biggest release really of instant dopamine that you can get. It's, it's an ecstasy. You know, it's like this full body like an orgasm. It's this full body experience that you cannot get with anything else drugs can't provide that you know alcohol can't provide that the only thing that can provide that is sex and so you get people that are are seeking the the chemical the dopamine release of that action they're seeking it so much that they will do terrible things to children to women to men you know to gain that that release that dopamine and for a lot of people the worse it is and the more taboo it is and the more wrong the more exciting it is so the bigger the the release and and it's sad um because not everyone's brains are wired the same way like don't get me wrong pedophiles fucking gross (laughs) but what about if you look at it from the perspective of like someone likes men, they're gay. What if you liked children? What if you actually fundamentally, physically, emotionally were attracted to children and you could do nothing about that? That's fucking sad. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And it's still wrong. Don't, yeah, don't no, get me wrong. I I'm not agreeing it. We talk it. about this all yeah. the time. But I, I read an article a while ago um, that was talking about this guy who... Uh, he went to the doctor after having headaches, and they did a CT scan, and it turned out to um, have a brain tumor. And throughout the time he was dealing with his brain tumor, he develops pedophilic urges. And it turned out that the t- tumor was pushing on the part of the brain that filtered through right and wrong. And uh, they went in, and they removed the tumor, and the pedophilic urges went away. Mm. And then, like, a couple months later, they came back. He went back to the doctor, and sure enough, the tumor had regrown. Mm-hmm. So... I think there's absolutely possibilities of looking at that as not necessarily that you know, these are horrible people, but how do we create a society with to, yeah. to, to mitigate the negative of that? I don't know. What do you do from that? I mean, it's a really, it's a really, really tricky topic to have a conversation about. But when I try and explain my way of thinking is if you look at humans as apes, you know, there is, if you look at a, a group of apes, there's a leader, whether it be a female or a male, often it is the biggest, strongest uh, male um, ape, but sometimes the female apes are the stronger. And uh, the animalistic urge to reproduce, that's that's in everything. That's why we have babies, you know, that's why we do that sort of stuff. But... Uh, we are apes, really. At the end of the day, we maybe not apes. We're we're humans, but we we have animalistic urges because that's we're animals. <laughs> it's, I can't get that across uh, any clearer, really. And the I guess the the topic behind being animals is uh, I'm going to go on the the subject of of men that rape. Um, it's a power thing because they want to be dominant. They want to be strong and big and powerful. But that dopamine release, I mean, I've, I've never raped someone, but 
I can imagine the dopamine release of physically doing something to someone that they don't want done to them is unbelievably overwhelming. It's You feel powerful. You feel like you are just the most mighty of, of people, which is wrong. It's so wrong. But I can see, well, I can imagine what's uh, what's going on in their brain when it's happening because chemicals absolutely it's, it's all just it's all just going around and it's hard because there are bad people and they're not always bad people children aren't born bad but they're bad because of their environment and what's around them and i guess the the best way to to solve the problem is communication you know teach men to be men rather than little boys you know teach men to think about their actions to think about others when they're acting uh, because i can uh, probably there's a small minority of people that would rate people who uh enjoy knowing that the person is feeling terrible but i i would say probably a lot of the other times they don't even think about that they're thinking about nothing but themselves and the feeling that they're going to get from the experience and then they leave behind a destroyed, broken human. Not that that human can't be built back up and potentially use that experience to empower them later in life, but when it obviously first happens, that's terrible. Big, strong leader ape man is feeling great because he's now powerful, but everything else underneath him is just left in the rubble. And if someone taught him or the people around him that that was so wrong and that is something that you you just can't do, and yes, it's all throughout society that that's wrong, but our society, people talk about it being wrong. But in so many other little community groups, well, not community groups, I guess like other pathways of, of society, people have accepted that you know it wasn't long ago where it was a viking culture it was completely normal to go into a village and take the woman and do whatever you wanted to them and that was just it was just what it was so it's it's physically ingrained from the time that if we were apes if that's what you believe in that happened when we were apes and it's happened all throughout history and i guess now we're in this position where women they they have a voice which is freaking awesome you know women have a voice not everywhere and sure it's definitely not as heard as much as it should be but it's changing the the world is changing it's growing the problem isn't getting worse i would say it's getting better and it's only going to get better through communication and by uh by enabling communication the way that the way that i see that is education you know like really i don't know how to explain it but if you have if you have someone that does bad things and then you put two good people on either side of them because they've been raised the right way that person in the middle isn't going to do something bad because those two people are going to be like bro you can't do that that's that's fucking wrong you know as opposed to how we handle it now which is we take the bad people and we put them next to other bad people we lock them into a little yes. bad environment and then expect them to be better on the other end when yes. we let them out in a year or two or five. But yeah. really, they're going to be so much worse because, like, <laughs> you imagine putting a whole lot of people together who uh, 
like children or like raping, whether it's guys or girls, you know, they all like the same things. And by putting them all together, that's not helpful. <laughs> it's just it's just adding fuel to the fire. So when they get out, they can be like, oh, yeah. 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 And it I'm completely normalizes the yeah, actions because totally. they're just surrounded by other people where it's like, yes, that's that was my Tuesday. That's what I did as yeah. well. Yeah. Whereas if you put them in a group of people that would like genuinely interested in their well-being because there's so many people out there there's so many people that want to help people and for a lot of people it doesn't matter what they've done or who they are or what they did to someone like they're human you know i was i was addicted to drugs i was uh this weird version of myself and i changed i changed who i was i like new things that i didn't like before and i yeah, I crave new things that I didn't crave before, and the things that I craved before, I don't crave now. You know, and that's just because of the the change of perception that I've had on myself, because of the people that I've met and the experiences that I've had. If you change someone's environment and change someone's perspective on why they do things, if you give someone purpose, then understanding comes a lot easier and. And doing things with purpose means you're not doing things for your emotion, for your dopamine. You're doing things on purpose, for purpose. And um, I think yeah, that's happiness and purpose, community, love. All of these things are, I would say, like four of the five fundamentals to to a happy life. What's the fifth? Well, I haven't quite figured that out yet. <laughs> we'll come. We'll have to interview you again when you do. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you definitely will. <laughs> but to be honest, I know there's five, but I don't think I'll ever find the fifth one until I die, because I think death is the fifth one. Death is the most powerful part of life. You know, it's the end of the journey. It's it's not something to be feared. I mean, if you embrace the idea that you'll be gone, I could be gone tomorrow, I could have, could have a little clot going around in me and just die right now. But if you embrace the fact that your time on li- or your time on the earth is, uh, or your time in this body or whatever you believe in, <clears throat> is so sacred and special, then that's that's the fifth one I think is death the end i mean it's always something that happens whatever you do like when you go home from from new zealand that's the end of this part of life and i don't i don't personally believe in an afterlife as such i don't know what i believe to be honest um but it's just another journey really isn't it life is just another journey it's just another adventure what i keep i keep thinking about is i know well, um, we talk a lot about safe spaces and, you know, like in, in environments like this, we're at a festival right now, um, they spend a lot of energy, like, uh, cultivating awareness of what it means to be in a safe space, to allow things like being Teaching able to walk around nude and consent. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if you could have that type of, type of vulnerability, like walking around naked, if, if you could sort of make it more widespread or if you need this type of community that 
is willing to put in the thought, the energy that it takes to think about these things and, and, and sort of monitor your own behavior to not necessarily act on every dopamine-seeking missile. Um, because of the same token, we also, you know, safe spaces become so <laughs> widespread, like, uh, I in feel, America, We feel like least. we've gotten, like, burnt. By, I don't know. Yeah, I, safe spaces on college campuses have become so overgrown that teachers are getting fired for not stifling free speech, which, you know, we're seeing yes. the pendulum swing your, to the... Your generation in America is ruining everything. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I don't know about like, how it's going in New Zealand, but yeah, like everyone, Generation Z, those born after 94, are, uh, have, are all conservative and have gone so far in the direction of free speech or of, of safe space then and never wanting any competition against like whatever is the absolute most i don't know pc type thing to say yeah. if anyone goes against that then they then they're violated and their safe space is violated basically anything that forces them to question or keep an open mind or hear different any all perspectives. Any, yeah, any different perspectives. Like literally, professors from Ivy League universities in America are getting fired for asking people to have open dialogue and and believe in free speech, which is the First Amendment it's, is the the it's main, crazy, a huge now it's governing the liberals that are trying America. to stifle free speech, which should be our you know one of our main. It's crazy. It's like uh, like it's a tough balance between the beauty of the, that the safe space like this actually brings and then seeing where it's been taken recently. Food for thought. <laughs> any, any comments on that? You know? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, I was 93, so... Oh, okay. Uh, you're not, safe. You're still there. a good person. You're <laughs> you're a millennial. <laughs> not one of them. But, um, you know, I, I know what you mean. It's... Do you see a big contrast in it with people younger than you in this country? I don't know if it's the same stuff. We're, ob we're obviously more knowledgeable about the current events in our country. Yeah, I guess I I couldn't honestly tell you um, because I, I you don't hang out in the yeah, box. Yeah, I don't hang out in the box, so <laughs> I don't actually understand what goes on. Um, like I have a very I have a very open mind uh, about absolutely anything yes um and well, it seems like you go outside of your own comfort zones if you if you even have any to understand everyone i mean you're you're we just spent 10 minutes talking about how to be empathetic with pedophiles all yeah. acknowledging that you know yeah that's i don't know i like i i would say as i as i grew up through my life having that adhd never being understood it's so so hard to describe um doing things and physically mentally not being able to stop yourself because because you don't think about your actions before you act you act and then you think because my brain is working so fast that i don't have time to even question what i'm about to do you know and to to that the normal brain, or the, not the normal brain, to the non-ADHD brain, the concept of not being able to pull yourself back and say, I'm not going to do that because that is dumb, or that's going to hurt me, or 
jumping over that car is unsafe. You know, halfway through the air, as I'm jumping over a car that's moving, the fear aspect jumps in and it's like, oh, this is scary. But I'm all right. You know, but I should have thought about that before I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But that, for me, the lack of understanding from others, always being the naughty kid because of a disability, which I now call a gift, but because of a disability that others didn't understand. A difference. Yeah, a difference. Uh, it's that has That has really given me an open mind because especially for mental health, which everyone's got mental health. Mental health doesn't just have to be like a diagnosed disorder. Everyone's got a mental energy. This is the conversation we've been having over the past like four days. I've been really wondering, like I've been asking him, do you think there's, there is such a person who, who is just what everyone would consider perfectly mentally healthy. Like I don't, I get so confused about what we're all striving for um, the problem like, with our mental health field is, is really everybody's on a continuum and, and everything's measured on a continuum and what mental health is, at least we think of by like a medical definition is do you fit into this box that is normal as that is within you know one standard deviation of what we consider to be the average response to stimuli and that's not a great way of really measuring people is there a person who fits into every single normal box there is, he'd probably be extremely bland. Yeah, I don't think we'd want to Boring hang out. As. He's not coming <laughs> yeah. on the podcast. I, I think but it would be interesting. It would be very interesting to interview, to interview the, so perfect, the perfect human. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that like it inherently can't exist because that person would, you know... They would have to be so incredibly open-minded about absolutely everything. Like, there would be nothing that they wouldn't be comfortable with talking about or doing. Or But even that would then that's, put him outside of the norm, unwell, yeah. which would then make yeah, it impossible. Right. To, so it's this, it doesn't really exist. I don't There's think it does. I don't something think we should strive possible. for. I mean, Something else that just popped into my head before was, uh, historically, I'm going to use orcas as an example, because they're highly intelligent creatures. What? Who? Orca. Orca wow, killer oh, whales. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh. Um, <laughs> that was so good. He's been practicing, hoping you'd bring it up. <laughs> so so uh, there's so many different kinds of orcas, but if you put them all together, there's only slight differences. Just like if you stood every single person up here at the festival, we all have slight differences. They have their communities and their families, and they have different languages amongst uh, different groups. Like if say the southern resident orcas in Vancouver Island met the northern resident orcas they couldn't even communicate because they don't know how to communicate with each other but if you put two of them in a pen together they would fight they would fight potentially to the death they would kill each other because they're not meant to be but they are highly intelligent in fact some people say that they're more intelligent more emotionally connected than people um so Humans historically lived in their own communities all over the world in villages, in caves, right back in, in the beginning, if that's what you believe in. Um, but, you know, historically we weren't meant to mix and mingle with other tribes of people. But we have, which is, on one hand, great. It's awesome. But there's, there's everything from the things we eat to the, the way we act to the beliefs that we have. They're all intermingled. 
which on one hand is great, but on the other hand makes it really, really confusing. Because those deep-seated genetic things that are going on inside your head that are passed on through the thousands of humans before you that little bits of your DNA is in is no longer exactly the same. We're mutants, really. We're like, we're mutants with lots of different bits of DNA from all the different communities of humans that started as villages, Mm. which if you can imagine if you got like uh, someone from Iceland, someone from the South Pole, someone from Africa, someone from Russia, and you bred them all together to create two humans, those humans would be very different than all of those humans, you know? Mm -hmm. Not just because of their environment, but because of the genetic fingerprint that's in their brains that controls a lot of the things that goes on. And that has a huge role to why we are the way we are today, I believe. Um, is that the we're mutants, you know? We're no longer a, a pure version of ourselves. Um, like the orcas. The orcas don't do that. They don't interbreed. They are. We are the southern residents. We are the northern residents. This is the way we do things. This is the way you do things. Um, but because we discovered, well, we built boats and we, we created ways of connecting other parts of the world that naturally we shouldn't have really connected with and introduced new things and brought plants from here to there to environments that aren't designed for those sorts of things it's kind of flipped the whole balance of everything that's natural upside down including this physical body that we're in do you kind of know what i'm saying absolutely yeah I think that's like a big thing is, is the way that we act is because of the way that the, the things that are inside us, you know, all the, the DNA that, that makes us up. And don't get me wrong, you can you can change that. I think extrapolating that idea, though, I mean, so we just had this conversation again recently, too. Like, uh, what I'm hearing is that your genetic code influences the way that you behave. And also, I mean, sort of follow that your genetic code also influences uh, particular attributes about yourself, starting from hair color, eye color, obvious ones, all the way down to sort of more controversial things like intelligence, um, which could then be said, you know, we take it for granted that certain species of dogs are more intelligent, certain ones are more prone to be obedient, certain ones are more prone to... neurotic behavior and they become drug sniffing dogs because Mm -hmm. they will do anything just win that you know um and why would it be different for people be naive to think that it was but that seems to be the trend that our culture is going in of 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 wanting that it's the most whatever politically correct acceptable safe space consent based culture way to think that we are all the same and that to point out differences to be aware of them is that that's what's wrong that's what's rude that's what's keeping society from progressing now, I think it is fair to note that that does come from a legitimate fear of that same argument being used to commit atrocities and enslave people and mass genocide you know there, there was another person making a similar argument that wound up with the death of millions and millions of people 
<laughs> it's not without reason that it is that way, but it does certainly have its backlash. You want to move on to them? Yeah. What is the most unrealistic thing you believe in? Oh, unrealistic thing I believe in. <laughs> yes. It's a perception thing. Um, so, to me, it seems unrealistic, but I still believe it's possible. So, uh, the idea that this this body is just a body, but there's something inside me that will move on to something else afterwards. The, I guess the the idea of resurrection in in another creature whether it be a mouse, not determined on how good you were in your past life. I feel like that that bit, that bit might be just like a one of those things that was created to make people be better. <laughs> but the, the I- people to stay in line yeah, in the box. And- exactly. Um, but the idea that this is my opportunity in a human body rather than in a bird's body or... Um, or something else because sure we can we can look at birds and we can look at them on a scientific level and someone smart can (laughs) can say that they're not conscious but unless you ask that bird and could communicate with the bird the way it communicates and the way that it thinks which is different to the way that humans think of course but how can you say that it's not conscious it's not um it doesn't have feelings as Mm -hmm. such crows have funerals for one another there's a perfect right. example. And also, have you seen the movie, um, shoot, what is it, about linguistics? It's about the Tower the... of Babel? No. Um, <laughs> Give me another hint. Never mind. Say any other words. Well, the whole, the whole the premise of the movie, I don't think you've seen it because we've talked about it, is that uh, the, the way that in which we speak to one another defines our reality. Um, it's, they take it to a point where you could even travel through time if you understood the language in which to do so. Uh, it's a very fascinating movie. Well, like a rival, maybe? But. I guess life is what you make it, right? So, for instance, people... There's some weird things that people believe in out there. Religion is the perfect example of of things that people believe in that are different. There's like You travel and you understand that there is like hundreds of different beliefs of what people perceive this journey to be. And they do at some sometimes really terrible things to other people because that's what they believe and that's that's uh, their perception of the world for instance i don't understand how, like what's going on in the head in their heads but like a monk like a buddhist monk who goes and meditates for like 40 years in the mountains and does nothing but meditates what is their reality what is going on in their head what what have they manifested for themselves? Because I know if I go and sit somewhere and close my eyes uh, or just ground myself, it's just black. You know, I, I obviously I'm at peace and and it's it's beautiful, but it's just it's nothing. You know, it's and that, that is powerful. Nothing is powerful, but I couldn't do nothing for 42 years. Yeah. So what is the reality that are going on in everybody else's brains because of their perception? Uh, like if you if you believe there's UFOs flying over, if you believe that hard enough, you will see UFOs flying over. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. A perfect, perfect example is hunters. You go out hunting, and the reason I'm using hunting is 
when you take an animal's life, I'm not sure if you ever ever have killed something, but when you take an animal's life, the rush, the ecstasy that unfolds from taking watching something's life drain out of it is unreal. It's absolutely unreal. When when I first first killed something uh, on my journey around New Zealand to to eat, I felt horrible, and every time I had to, I felt horrible. But it was so natural. It was this primal instinct to take life to give life, um, and that that was such a strange concept for me to to really think about the the idea. I don't even know what I was saying anymore. You refresh my memory, sorry. <laughs> the primal instinct ah, of ecstasy yeah. associated with taking a life for a life. Yeah. So, so when when I was when I was out there hunting, there was there was times where I I felt so so bad about myself because I was taking the life of something else that was living. I would always do it in a respectful way. Like if I caught something, I would talk to it and I would soothe it and I would make it feel as comfortable as possible and kill it as quickly as I could um but it was this it was this strange feeling of not necessarily power but survival I was keeping myself alive I was taking life to keep myself alive if I didn't eat I would die you know and that's given me a really beautiful and powerful understanding for animals and and for life and um hunting is exactly the same you go out there and you get this almighty rush of the pre-rush like you're looking at at a deer through your scope and you're looking at it and you know it's a deer you're 100% positive it's a deer and you shoot it and you go over to it and you've just shot your hunting mate just shot someone else because your brain wants that release so so bad that you've shot your mate because you perceived him as a deer because you saw him move in a way that didn't seem human yeah and because you needed well because you because the the killer instinct is strong in people it's it's natural to kill things that's you were setting up that perspective and confirmation bias of like it's, it's, does this check the box of being a deer and ignoring the things yeah. that don't? You know, and, and you're doing that because the I want to go back to that primal instinct of humans killing things. Traditionally, we had to kill things to survive. In places that we didn't kill things, we ate nuts and berries. But that wasn't because there wasn't things to... to uh, there wasn't other things to... Sorry. That wasn't because we wanted to that was because there wasn't any animals to kill you know uh, traditionally we ate meat raw you know we just killed and ate it, well, that's all we did uh, so going back to that genetic fingerprint the the killer instinct is so powerful and strong it's so powerful that it can change what you see when you're hunting like there's been so many times where i've been so hungry that i could eat absolutely anything and I've been walking along, and because I hunt with a bow, it's very different than a than a rifle. You literally have to stalk mm-hmm. your prey. You have to be a predator. You have to 
follow its trail. You really have to track it rather than standing a kilometer away or on a valley and being like, oh, look, there's something moving. Oh, it looks like a deer. Bang! Oh, shit, it wasn't a deer. But you still got that rush. You still got that, that feeling of providing for yourself and providing for your family. Um, but you didn't, you didn't actually shoot a deer. <laughs> you know? The, the perception of, of, uh, of everything is, is all around us, you know? Alright. If there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing, what would it be? One action. Behavior. Behavior-wise. Behavior or action. Oh, or action. I think hiding emotion, you know, and and I and I mean that, and not only not only the way that, so I mean some emotions good to hide, like if you're angry and you want to punch people, yeah, don't use that emotion out there all the time, but just talk about things, you know. I I I think if every person on earth decided that they were going to talk about all their problems with everyone with anyone the world would be such a better place because people would want to help like for instance if i'm not sure how you would feel about this but if i said i've got a really to anyone i've got a really big piece of glass stuck in my foot can you please help me get it out you know that's a physical thing but it's no different than i i'm feeling really bad about myself i don't like who i am i'm i feel useless and worthless can you please help? You know, if people asked for help, if people expressed their emotions and really decided that they're, they're worth more than hiding things, you know, and, and I think that's what it's up to, uh, it's about, is the perception of uh, you feeling like if you share your emotions, it's the, the ego you know, if if you share emotions, your ego could be damaged because people will think that you're not a, like a strong person. You're a weak person, and that's just the society thing. But if everyone just shared and and spoke about things that they needed help with, if people weren't afraid to ask for help, though, I believe the world would be a, an amazing place. Because jumping back to the atrocities that we were talking before if people that had urges to do terrible things to people told someone about it even though it's wrong they were strong enough to be able to say hey man i i like doing something that's really wrong because they know it's wrong like it doesn't matter who they are they know it's wrong but they do it anyway because of the release the dopamine all that sort of stuff the chemicals but if they were if they were open enough to ask for help, then that can change for them. So, is that a good answer for your question? It's <laughs> a great answer. Well, wait, do you have things to say to that? I feel like, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I totally hear what you're saying, and I, for the most part, I agree with it. But I feel like, again, in some of the communities that we've been in, that that has been accepted and it's gotten taken to an extreme, and it goes back to your first question of perception and confirmation bias of being like i feel like well definitely uh before before we left on our 
before we abandoned the United States because it wasn't working for us and, and stepped very widely outside of the box that we were in. Um, I was working in the corporate America and I felt like there it was so acceptable to that the, the primary mode of communication and connection was either small talk or complaining and that there was no room for joy or true vulnerability or happiness and any time that I tried to bring that in, that's what made people really uncomfortable. That's what got shot down. And people would usually respond either dismissing or or being upset with me and thinking that I was either like rubbing it in their faces or making it up, being fake um, or or just responding with more complaints to change the subject back into a direction that they were comfortable with. And I feel like, yeah, some of the communities we've been involved in, it's it's unacceptable to not be a victim. It's unacceptable to not be a subject of your trauma and that there's so much pressure to talk about that and to relate to everyone else on the basis of trauma that people forget about leaving room for and cultivating joy and, and I think, like, true connection and vulnerability. I also think... That going back to your analogy of the glass and the foot, I think we all agree that it'd be great if, you know, somebody was saying they had glass in their foot that somebody would help them take it out. But when it becomes somebody constantly complaining about a thorn in their side and not taking the thorn out, just bitching about it and then getting positive feedback by other people who are also bitching about the thorn in their side and not taking it out, it becomes something that is not great to be around. Yes, I'd say we've no, both we've both had this in the wide the like like a community spectrum but also on individual bases where people we've been very close with have wanted to be you know that their their only way of of knowing how to be vulnerable is only focusing on the negative and that eventually I mean like I'd say we're both you know good loving people who really like helping people but there's a limit to to my own mental health of how much i'm i can be there for someone else who who does nothing but take my support and and drain that out of me if if it's nothing but see how terrible the world is see what the world's doing to me i need help because because this is what's happened to me it's like I will I will do my best for much longer than most people, but it is so will he much longer than me. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, what I suspect that the sort of answer is is that like in the world that you're sort of describing is one that we should all be sort of striving towards, but things need to happen sort of piecemeal. Like you need to have people raised in an environment that's conducive to this type of growth and learning so that those people can turn around and not have to you know, know that they can take the thorn out. And then those, so it's sort of, you might have to put up with a little bullshit at first in order to get to the end destination of where you really want to be as a society. And that might look like generation time, you know, but we could do it faster possibly, but I suspect it probably takes generational growth to really, make true true progress yeah and it seems like everything with culture is big pendulum swings like our parents generation there that was way more an intense culture of like absolutely repress your emotions and yeah they were alive through 
hippie awakenings and whatnot, and that certainly helped. But still, they were raised of like, you know, chin up, stay tough. And now it seems like the kids who are being raised today is every single emotion you have is valid, deserves respect and undivided attention. And I don't think that's the way to go because there's a lot of times. I mean, because it is we're animals that are having chemical reactions to stimuli. And there's a lot of times where it's like, I'm rational enough to know that this emotion is not like, even though it's chemically real, it's not something that I am self-identifying with. Like it's happening in my brain, but like, it's not something that I need to take on. I need to do whatever I can do to get through it and let it pass, but not give it my undivided attention and bring it to others because that'll totally reshape my trajectory of my own self dirty and like my relationship with others. I think it's really interesting and correct me if I'm wrong. Northern. Er, we, so we've been living in Northern Thailand. And one of the things that we've been told is that a cultural difference there is that it's really sort of rude to show anger or like, I think even sadness in public like in our like a couple arguing in, in the middle of a restaurant would be just like appalling mm-hmm. you know that's something you might see frequently in the states and i always thought that was interesting of like don't show those negative emotions because it's rude to other people is sort of a boiled down version of that same sort of thing i think that's an interesting cultural difference and i, I can see the benefit and the negative both like of that Totally. I guess if you went back to the animal within all of us, if you look at all the animals in nature, if they show signs of weakness or if they show signs of fear, they become prey for something bigger, something stronger. And that's that's a natural process, you know. That's something that's totally that happens in nature. It happens in humanity. Um, the weak get left behind and the strong live on. And then smart people make drugs to bring the <laughs> small people back to to the level that they think they should be on um and i, t- I totally get what you mean like if if everyone just started talking about their problems and very quickly what has happened now what i feel you're talking about that has happened now i live outside the box so i don't really see it but it's it's very easy to forget that you're meant to feel happy and you're meant to share happiness and joy with people rather than just sharing the bad stuff. Because if you just share the bad stuff, the bad stuff gets worse. Absolutely. And it gets worse not only for yourself because eventually that bad stuff cannot be helped by the same person and now they feel like shit because they can't help you and they've taken on all of your problems and they just, they're just, you know, they're really feeling... That I give it, I give it up to psychologists. I know. Holy oh my god, shit. I was thinking about that so much. Like, Everyone's problems. Everyone's yeah. are just on their shoulders. <laughs> when I keep coming back to like the the distinction between positive psychology and psychology, and you know, it's it's we should focus on mitigating the bad and dampening that and whatever we can, but we should also focus on the good and how to accentuate that in all ways and like you know. And especially in these types of environments, gratitude is usually a really big point of conversation and fostering a sense of gratitude, taking that perspective, you know, that changing your perspective, the knowledge that you can change your perspective and then choosing one of gratitude, I think, is fundamental to living a fulfilled life. Totally. Totally.
What is the most annoying thing about people? You know, personally to me, the most annoying thing about people is say you, you have something. I mean, this people probably find this annoying about me as well. Um, but when you meet someone that believes so strongly in their one thing that no matter what you say, you cannot even get them to even think about the way that you're seeing it because we're both seeing a different reflection of the same uh, the same thing. Uh, here's a good analogy. You know those really cool fiber optic tails? Yeah. And the coolest thing about them is when I look at them and when you look at them, we are seeing completely different things because of the way the fibers are facing our eyeballs. It's exactly the same with, with people, you know, with the, the perception of, of the way you look at things. Um, Good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I find that really, I guess, annoying. <laughs> that, that uh, yeah, people's, uh, I mean, belief is good, but closed-mindedness is it's fucking annoying. <laughs> like, yeah. I particularly enjoy it when it's masquerading behind a mat, like a face of, I am so open-minded yes. that this is <laughs> this what is... everybody should think. <laughs> You'll see this in our next segment, but definitely I feel like hanging out in the hippie community, I mean, it's definitely my favorite people and largely because of their open-mindedness, but it is so funny at times where it's like, do you see how open-minded I am? That it's so obvious to me that every single thing in my life, your life, and the world can be completely explained by astrology. And if you don't see it that way, it's just because you're not open-minded. Mm. It's taken it past past the open part. Yes. And you've gone through another door. Yeah. <laughs> you're not in the closed world. You're like entering another world. <laughs> this is the this is Generation Z. This is the, <laughs> this is the next step. A new door. <laughs> Open wide. We're coming in. <laughs> I like it. What is something in five years that is really popular now, but in five years everybody will look back on and be embarrassed by? I think um, it's already happening. Um, is the the concept, but in fact, I think it's probably already happened. But even more so, I think maybe, maybe not five, maybe ten. The the way that we look at, uh, say, a man loving a man, or a woman loving a woman, or uh, two women loving one man. You know, all those perceptions of what society has told us is acceptable with with love and physical human connection. I think that will look back on the way that well, a lot of people will look back on the way they they felt or they expressed emotions towards seeing two men kissing in public um i mean once again mutations um and there's it's just it's just a mutation you know there's no one there's no one saying that it's wrong or right it just is what it is and i think potentially in 5 years a lot of people will look back and be embarrassed of the way that they felt or the way that they reacted when they saw that sort of thing. Because if you go back into, I think it's Roman culture, men being with men was about pleasure. Straight men were with straight men for pleasure. Um, and and that that's something that's changed, you know? Like the whole Roman Empire was crushed, and so that sort of thing... Just it even got a little bit weirder than just that. Yeah. <laughs> you should uh, read the book Sex at Dawn. So it takes an anthropological look at uh, sex throughout history. 
Yeah, and it's, it's one quite of those things, eh? Yeah, yeah, I mean, to see how much it's changed, and that, uh, to me, demonstrates the pliability of it, and is, why don't we just pick the best version of it that is it's best for society that makes everybody the most happy, eh? Yeah. And the, maybe in five years. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, just on that topic, like, a big thing that people don't do, and it's happening less and less, is looking back in history. I think history class is probably one of the most important things you could learn when you're at school or once you leave school is looking back at history, at people's actions, what people did, the way people acted sexually, the way people acted emotionally, so that your judgment of the way you want to act in the world can be based on your perception of all well, the different if things. If only they taught it that way. and It wasn't, yeah. you know, Christopher Columbus sailed to watch date. It was yeah. what yeah. made him want to leave... Yes. Yeah, so if they humanized place. history, yeah. I you know, I love historical fiction, and I mm-hmm. fucking hated history class. Yeah, same. <laughs> I hated history too because it was just the facts. Like yes. this person wrote here memorization, and, here and, here. and then being quizzed on your ability to memorize, not oh. your ability to comprehend human interaction at that yeah. time. Yeah, and there's another one. Five years time, that'll be changed. Hopefully, fingers <laughs> crossed. And we will look back Very on the way we taught though. our children and the way that we were taught. I look back five years ago, even now I look back, the way that I was taught was when I was in school, I'm embarrassed that people taught people like that <sighs> because I did not learn a fucking thing. You know, I can't do my times tables. I don't remember hardly anything. Most of my facts of the medieval realm of world came from playing Age of Empires. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> I learned things out. I learned more things outside of school while I was at school than when I was in school, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Trebuchets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what is your favorite thing about yourself? Ooh. You know, I guess I go through different um, different stages of, of what I like about myself, um, depending what mood I'm in. Uh, quite often, I have a negative perception of myself. And that's due to the ADHD. Quite often, it gets the better of me, and uh, it's a it's an emotional disorder, really. So sometimes I'll look at all the things that I'm doing and just think, why am why am I why am I even doing this? And I I think dwelling on the past is is like my biggest flaw. I was like, you know, you watch those TV shows of terror children that like terrorize their parents and uh, no, what tv shows are this? yeah well they're like on youtube <laughs> but um i a daily thing that i would say uh growing up was i fucking hate you to my mum and Aww. i wish you'd die and just these horrible horrible things and the strangest thing about that is the reason i was so horrible and the reason i would annoy my family to the point that they would break, and I would do that on purpose. I would annoy them until they broke, because do you know that the emotion that's stronger than love is hate, and hate is so, so much more powerful and emotional than love. Love is slow, and it should be cherished, and it should be like overwhelming, like fuzzy things all over you, but hate is vicious, and it's fast, and it's it's intense, you know, and Although it's not a positive dopamine, it's still dopamine. And the dopamine that I got from being a fucking little asshole was so much more powerful than being nice and being praised. 
you know if you look at it from that perspective um it was so much easier to to fuck someone off and have a fight or to to see other the the emotion i would always feel terrible after i would always just i would hate myself because once again one of those actions that i couldn't control i just had no I, I didn't even realize I was doing it until it was done. And so looking back on the way that I acted growing up, especially through my teenage years where there was testosterone and all sorts of other chemicals <laughs> charging around through my body, um, it makes me really sad and sometimes I just feel like the worst person on earth because of the way that I, I treated and at at times, not very often, still do, um, snap back to to what I grew up with as normal. You know, looking back on my life, I didn't have an abusive mum. I didn't have an abusive dad. I wasn't um, molested by someone. I I had nothing really bad happen to me except for myself. I am a product of of my own um, my own actions, and that's something that I find really tough. Um, a lot of the time. So if I could accept that that was the past and move forward from that, that would be amazing for me. But um, like I said, at different points of um, emotional levels in my head, one moment I'll have accepted it and moved on, and then the next moment it'll be like everything. You know when stuff gets tough, all the bad stuff starts coming in? It's just like that. But then other times I'm on top of the world and I know that the way I live my life now or the way that I try to live my life is it's with my own and everyone else's best intentions at heart. Do you think the Ritalin helped with that aspect of ADHD? Well, I uh, actually just went back on Ritalin three months ago and you ask my partner, you ask my parents, you ask anyone that's close enough to me to, to know my bad side. Um like firsthand, and they will tell you 100% yes, the Ritalin <laughs> changes the way that I act and the way that I am able to emotionally um, react to situations. Um, yeah, 100%. My pills help help with my life. Um, and once again, ADHD, mutation, I have a missing chemical. I don't have enough receptors to take the dopamine from the incoming to the receiving. So, sure, a great thing happens. Only a little bit of the dopamine comes through. And it doesn't stay there. It just goes, gone. There, see you later. <laughs> and um, the Ritalin gives me more receptors. It, it means that when something good happens, I feel good. And when I take the Ritalin, I feel good. Um, wow. It's it's a it's a powerful tool, and sure it has side effects, but like I mean, I I feel good when I take Ritalin, and I feel really bad without even knowing I'm feeling bad when I'm not on Ritalin, and um, totally Ritalin is is amazing, um, and it's it's the the scientific world coming back in again. You know, just like the surgery I spoke about earlier, there's a, definitely a place for um, man-made substances to help with uh, with problems and uh, different levels of 
of emotion. It'd, it'd be strange to think if we jumped back to the beginning of time, um, or before the beginning of time, before time was even a concept to people, did people act the way that we act now, or was life much simpler? Like when when they just were purely instinctual and they hunt, they eat, they sleep, they have sex because it feels good and oh look there's a baby let's keep doing this because it feels good and babies you know (laughs) and right in the beginning did people get sad about the same things we get sad about now about ourselves or has that been a product of of growth and change and learning and be very interesting to know we never will but um, the concept of how people thought before thinking you know um there's we listened to an audiobook this summer uh uh, the author of eat pray love she like she sort of goes into this subject a little bit and i think about it all the time anytime anytime i start beating myself up for being sad about something that i'm like i don't deserve to be sad about this because it's not sad enough and then i'm and then that's the most unpredictable line of thinking there is i think about this book where she talks about that uh you know she explored people from all over the world and and interviews her uh, psychologist friend who who did all of these outreach things and like talked to people in remote tribes people who had suffered through like the worst traumas imaginable uh not necessarily going back in history but everything that was happening you know 15 years ago and that pretty universally like the main thing that no matter what traumas people had experienced that the main thing at the end of the day was always am i worthy of love Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. coming right back to love <laughs> <laughs> one of the fundamentals <laughs> what is your most embarrassing story before age 10 Ooh. it's kind of sad and embarrassing but when I look back I I know that for everyone around me in the situation, it was so embarrassing for not only myself, but for them. Um, we were out to dinner at a kebab shop, like in like quite a public place. <laughs> and uh, there was lots of chickens running around. And I loved Age of Empires at the time. And you kill chickens on Age of Empires. So I was going to kill a chicken here. So I chased it around with a, with a rock and killed this chicken. And someone saw me. And in my mind, I was, it seemed so normal because it was just, you know, it's what, what I did on the game. Um, and for a, for a 10 year old, that is a normal thing, you know, like not understanding that the game in real life is very, very different things is a totally normal concept because of imagination and stuff. Mm -hmm. You're still so connected with that. Uh, but anyway, I get like taken back to the restaurant by the scruff of my neck by this lady who saw me and she, publicly like yelled at me in front of this whole restaurant and my parents were so embarrassed and I just felt so terrible but I felt Aww. terrible because what I had done wasn't wrong at the time I mean yes it was the wrong thing to do kill kill a chicken but when I was doing it I wasn't doing it because I was a bad person killing an animal I was I was just doing what I thought I could do and that's, that was my perception of the, the situation, which was obviously different to your perception and your perception. Um, but that was really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. That, 
It's very sad as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. What is the book that has most influenced your life? Ooh. You know, I've only got one book that I can actually remember reading my whole life, and it was called The Hatchet. Um, oh, I love that book. I yeah, love yeah, that's the um, that's one of them. There's a Kiwi author um, called Barry Crump, um, and he's like an adventure story writer. He adds like um, fictional stuff into his true stories. He was like, um, you know, he's a good keen man, Kiwi bushman. He used to live in the bush in the deer hunting part of New Zealand's history, and had all these wild stories of being chased by wild bulls and hunting pigs. And he was just a real, you know, character, like a true a Kiwi uh, character. And um, I read his books when I was walking around New Zealand. Have you seen Hunt for the Boulder People, the movie? No. Watch that because that's based off um, one of his books and it's captured it so well. And that's like exactly what you imagine when you are reading his books. Uh, but, yeah, that that was... I guess it hasn't influenced the way I live my life at all, but it was. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what? It sounds like Hatchet you're has an influence. <laughs> it sounds like an adult. Well, maybe More subconsciously, because I don't remember the book at all. <laughs> I was like six years old. <laughs> but um, it's the only book I actually remember reading. I was never really a big reader. I am. Um, Dyslexia and all. Yeah, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. Got to read a book twice, each, each letter. Like, when I read things, I read the letters rather than the words. Um, I'm just like as well. Yeah, it's tricky. Have you tried the font? First time you've announced it on the podcast. Yeah. I feel like we've interviewed I, other people. I'm like, like so. oh my god. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> Same club. I feel like everyone who we like most in the world has dyslexia. It's like a really cool club that you're a part of. I like Einstein. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> What life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? Yeah, recently I've started doing a lot of uh, yoga and um, kind of playing around with the idea of meditation and, and trying out meditation. But the way my brain works, meditation isn't isn't like a sitting in one place and emptying my brain isn't something that gives me a great deal of peace. Um, my brain works a million miles an hour a million percent of the time it just uh, constantly new information coming in and i find peace in in that um walking that big walk around new zealand that was very meditative you know it was it was uh very grounding and it made me realize that uh i can find peace in other ways other than doing nothing um i yeah i would say that being out in nature and just like i want to say toddling about and just doing random stuff building little little things art and trees i love to go a play go to a place and find sticks like this and make massive big random bits of art in the middle of nowhere that maybe someone will see and be like whoa someone must have spent weeks doing that or like days you know <laughs> That that sort of thing, like the mandala on the side of my truck, yeah. Um, that sort of thing, I get great, great peace from, and and really um makes me realize, well, it ma- makes me, makes me happy, you know, 
and grounds me. That one of our projects when we get back to Thailand is we plan to make uh, little fairy houses and then put them on yes. trees. <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, just something that makes you think, if someone else sees that, what are they going to think? <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. Totally. What is the most environmentally friendly thing you do and or the main environmentally friendly thing you want others to do? Um, I very recently um, changed the way I eat. So I call myself a sustainitarian. Nice. So I will, I will not eat meat that is from a farm or from uh, pretty much any any method where someone has taken animals, bred them to make money. Um, so I, I don't eat um, any meat that I haven't killed myself um, because I think if you have the respect to be able to take a life and uh, and eat that life without feeling so bad that you can't eat it then you have every right to be able to eat eat that meat but if you buy it in a supermarket and you have no idea where it came from what it looked like if it was healthy like i i have this huge thing when, when i was walking around new zealand when i killed something i would look into its eyes and i would i would watch it i would watch it fade away and I did that so that it wasn't alone when it died. You know, I was I was a part of that experience for it, and and it wasn't scared and alone. It was, you know, I I would, I feel like I would like that if if I died by someone else or someone killed me for them to look me in the eyes. Yeah, I, it's just I guess my percep- my perception of it. But so I yeah I pretty much only eat um, vegetables, and I think that's really good for. For the environment, uh, I believe farming is terrible for the environment in so many different ways. The mass production of of animals. There's uh, three cows to every human on earth. Um, what? Yeah. Wow! Yeah. So, I feel like Australia that, is right? responsible for a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the the states is the states also. Too. Uh, well, I will tell you one thing. I mean, I by largely agree with you, and I feel like the majority of my life has been devoted to uh, getting people away from factory farming and educating them about alternative methods. But one of the main things that is that is good for ozone, greenhouse gases, is having pastures. So because it acts as one of the greatest carbon sinks there is. So having pasture-raised animals, again, it's like, you know, the whole system needs to be disrupted for it to actually be sustainable. But in terms of, you know, as of right now, the system, the Western world, or every most of the world, is money-motivated. So one of the things to at least be somewhat attempting to lessening one of the many problems that we've created is actually to promote pasture-raised farming anyway and yeah in new, in new zealand we um we pretty much only do like free free roaming cows and their yeah. paddocks and stuff but um paddocks. you have to correct me if i'm wrong if someone else uh hears this and like that's not true but i believe it is true i'm pretty sure i i saw it somewhere and um officially somewhere <laughs> um new zealand's biggest contributor to uh greenhouse gases is cows it's oh farms, yeah absolutely you know? absolutely um, that's one of i think it's the number one in and the world well, so, yeah. I mean, but what you're saying is i mean so if you took say a pasture and let it have overgrowth 
that would be less carbon reducing than no being a pasture i'm saying this is a lot of this knowledge comes from um my farmer friends in costa rica uh who have done a lot of science on this topic and they really wanted me to incorporate it into that big art piece i did in chicago um so i don't know as much about it and all most of this is just regurgitating their research um I don't think they're necessarily saying that. They're saying, like, obviously planting trees is great, but basically the, one of the big reasons to not say stop eating meat entirely, but to, because, well, by and large, the majority of people aren't open to that type of big change. Um, but to, you know, a big folk, to be an environmentalist and to be an optimistic environmentalist especially is to put a focus on the putting your energy towards the lesser of all evils and when you're being an educator or any type of environmentalist where you're interacting with the general public who hasn't had their own environmental awakening it's to show them the sides that can increase happiness that it isn't all about getting rid of the easiness and the pleasures and the joys that they experience in everyday life so it's a lot about being like okay well like you're not going to give up this so at least do this yeah so you, you don't like any you don't like you wouldn't like to eat any animal that's been bred for the specific for the purpose of eating don't get me wrong i love don't get me wrong i love meat i absolutely love meat when i smell meat cooking when i see meat roasting i want to eat it but the the idea that someone is growing animals for people to eat seems so foreign like this wouldn't work it totally wouldn't work because thousands of people would die but if tomorrow someone was like right no more farming and as sad as it sounds all of the farmed animals were euthanized um there would be thousands and thousands and thousands of people that that would die um all of the natural animals would get eaten and die um and it would in the long term it would it would solve a lot of problems um with the environment with everything but it would also mean a lot of people would disappear off the face of the earth because going back to the the survival basics of life um just wouldn't be there and people that couldn't kill they would grow vegetables you know mm -hmm. people that suddenly realized holy shit I've got to kill these animals to eat them. They would just be like, "No, nah, I'm not doing that," and they would eat vegetables. Um, I, I think a big problem with with one thing that happens is all those bloody pine trees. Like pine trees aren't natural to New Zealand, mm -hmm. but if we planted like even hemp in the place of pine trees, like the amount of uh, good stuff that comes off them and into the atmosphere is so much better than the bad stuff that drops off the pine trees and kills the soil. It's super high in um, and acids and uh, another big thing with uh, with farming in New Zealand is it's so prolific like you drive through the South Island Canterbury it's just used to be beautiful uh, hydrocarb forest just everywhere but now it's completely nothing just big open paddocks with um, introduced uh, plants growing along as shelter belts and that's been like the last 50 years of farming. Now what's happening is all of those super high nitrogen rich uh, 
cow shits that are being sprayed onto the fields to help the grass grow, that are soaking into the soil, they're hitting the water table, which is now contaminating mm. the groundwater, the stuff that we actually need to survive, which comes out in the rivers and the springs. And, and that's only just started, but it's a slow process. So if we stopped today with, with that side of farming, um, it would take 10 years before something even stopped happening and started to get better. Uh, I guess there's so many aspects of of meat that, uh, eating meat that is being raised for money is wrong to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I have no issue with one day when I have a little block of land, having my own pigs, um, my own cow, my own chickens. And the big thing about that is, is when they're alive, I, I will make them happy, you know. I will I will give them time. I will give them affection. I will I will show love towards those animals so that they've had a happy life. And, you know, I would feel, if I could eat them, I would feel so much better knowing that the whole time that animal was alive, it was the happiest animal it could have been, even happier than it would have been struggling to survive out there in nature and way happier than it would have been being forced through gates, being forced through fences, being put into a massive truck with a uh, hundred other cows or sheep, knowing that something's wrong because they've got shit dropping all over them and they're getting taken to a slaughterhouse and then watching your mates go into a saw and die, getting shot right in front of each other, right in the head. Bang, bang, bang. Just, you know, it's so fucked up that, yeah, that people will just kill on that scale just for money really at the end of the day yes it's to feed people but i never thought i'd say this in my whole life we don't actually need meat you know (laughs) we don't need meat to survive well i also think sort of on that point i think it's worth mentioning because it seems to be like the elephant in the room that nobody really addresses too often at least is that yeah you know if we if we switched over to a more healthy practice that tens of thousands of millions of if not billions of people would die, really what we need to do, we need to do it quicker, sooner rather than later, is start having negative population growth. Woo! Yeah, well, no, that is a big elephant in the room, and it's something that I would say a lot of people think about, that I think about all the time, but it is that... Nobody talks no, about it, though. Nobody in a realistic way. of Like, hey, guys, we, we actually need to start not making as many babies, or we're all going to die. Yeah. Horrible, and, horrible starving And, and it deaths. doesn't have to be people killing other people like has no. been done in the past Especially if we do it right now you know <laughs> it just literally has to be someone implementing a collective like idea that maybe we should only have one baby you know one baby per family type thing it is well, i have more things to say but i think we've uh, yes. overrun our time here all right so one more time where can people find you uh just google wild boy adventures uh or search my name anywhere brando yelovich and i'll pop up all right. Thank you so much for taking the time to All do right, this. It's welcome. been awesome talking to you. This is our longest podcast ever by like a long shot because you were too interesting. We couldn't stop. <laughs> Yay. Thank All you right. for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.